quite looking forward to this because I've got a glass of wine in front of me, Argentine Malbec, obviously, and I'm I know that I'm going to be pretty quiet-ish episode because I know that you've seen so many more films than I have. I've got um, I think I've got four, and I've got four and four on the go that I I need to finish. So um, I've only got four that I can, you know, really conclusively discuss. Yeah, well. Uh, I've watched every film that's ever been released oh. so, this week. So, uh, what did you yeah, think about been... 1995's Granny and Howling <laughs> Seven: New Moon Rising? <laughs> a horror film that consists. Oh, it was written, directed, and edited and starred uh, a guy called. I think his name was like Adrian Smith, mm. <laughs> not the guitarist from Iron Maiden. And he literally, it's it's a horror film, and it's him walking around mumbling and just people like farting and laughing. Um, and I thought this is this is an horror film. <laughs> I think at the end, genuinely, as he's gonna, as he leaves the town, I think like a a werewolf jumps out or something. But they don't even discuss werewolves in it. Jeez. At least they did in Howling Six: The Freaks with Bruce Payne. <laughs> what film? I never got past Howling One. I don't think I did like. <laughs> you, you must have seen Howling Two: The Legend of Stirba, starring Jimmy Nail. No, 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 I like that one slipped away. Jimmy Nail is in that film. It's, it's Sybil, I want to say, it's not Sher- Sybil Danning. All right, okay. Uh, and in the second one, that's the one where um, some some bloke's sister gets killed by a werewolf at the start. Mm. And, and they go, and he, he's at a funeral, and he's just like by the sort of borderline of the, um, obviously this is like 1980, I want to say, like one or two or whatever. He's, he's basically by the fence in the funeral having a fag. And someone comes over in a, in a hooded jacket and says, oh, mate, your sister was killed by a werewolf. And he just goes, all right. And just get massively involved in that aspect straight away without any questions, follows the bloke off, boom, done. So nonchalant. Imagine if you were at like a family funeral and you were just having a fag and someone says, oh, mate, your wife was eaten by a zombie. Do you want to follow me and I'll show you? You're like, yeah, of course I will. Course <laughs> yeah, I suppose will. I better, really. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, how could I live with myself if I didn't? Yeah, better get on it. Um, mm. So, uh, Arkansas. Yes, and you had to get from Stu to Sandy. By the way, before you do this, um, I don't know which is the best way to do because I have actually been sent um, two versions of this already, the Arkansas, from Stuart Lee to Sandra Bullock. Yeah. Um, and I didn't know if it was best to read our listeners' versions out first or let you do yours first. I think listeners first, you know, give them the, uh, give give them them the, the spotlight. Yeah. Okay, here we go. So, obviously, uh, as is routine on this show, our listeners are in a veil of secrecy <laughs> and work under pseudonyms. So, this this one, you, you'll have to count the steps because I, I haven't um, counted the steps. So get your fingers ready. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is uh, uh, sort of getting from Stuart Lee to Sandra Bullock. And this was sent in by someone who wishes to be called Urethral Stent. So this is Stu- Stuart Lee uh, with, with Kevin Eldon in King Rocker. So Eldon was in Hot Fuzz with Simon Pegg. And then Leonard Nimoy in the Star Trek reboot. Nimoy and Shatner are in a million Star Trek films together. Mm-hmm. And Shatner was with Sandra Bullock in Miss Congeniality. Okay. So how, many, how many steps was that? That sounded like five. Okay. And there's another one of someone who wishes to be known as Tracy Paper. 
and this is Stuart Lee was in the documentary with Kevin Eldon. Kevin Eldon was in Hot Fuzz with Simon Pegg. Simon Pegg was in Mission Impossibles with Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise was in Eyes Wide Shut with Nicole Kidman. Oh, you must like that, Rupert, little Kubrick reference. Oh, yeah. Who was in Practical Magic with Sandra Bullock. Okay, that's five again, yeah. It's true, all true. Um, I I did get other ones that were involving TV series, and I slammed the book shut on that shit. (laughs) You know, I do not watch the Savalas, and therefore it doesn't feature in Arkans, though. (laughs) Um, Stuart Lee was... Uh, in King Rocker with Kevin Eldon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love the fact that it's just Kevin Eldon is the key. Here. <laughs> there's, no, there's, no, there's just a black hole otherwise. <laughs> Kevin Eldon was in Hot Fuzz with Steve Coogan, who is in Minions with Sandra Bullock. Oh, wow. Three steps. And that's mm-hmm. without Googling. That is with te- checking. That is with checking. Oh, so you, you, you just, you did it and then you just check you were right i suppose yeah, you have to check yeah. otherwise you otherwise no other you just say it and i tell that's wrong and then you just go on for another four years so, so the key was because obviously hot fuzz well eldon's the only link in the first part of the chain <laughs> and then <laughs> and then you've got to find eldon in an ensemble cast so everyone goes for hot fuzz so it's like right who in hot fuzz has been in every single film known to man steve coogan Timothy Dalton. I, I do like, I've got to say though, um, I do like thinking about Timothy Dalton. Um, he's he's someone that when he pops into my head, I don't even know if he could kiss me at a bar. I just like thinking about him because I know he's my mother's favorite James Bond. And so, and because he was basically in James Bond and then he was in um, Beautician and the Beast with Fran Drescher and then Hot Fuzz. It's like, oh, I don't often get to think about him, you know? So, and yet you <laughs> I, could I, be watching Flash Gordon and seeing him in that. So, <laughs> I've never seen Flash Gordon. I've seen Flash Gordon, oh, I think. Oh, well, we should, we should have uh, a, an episode where we just purely watch 80 sex comedies, like the Porky series and stuff. They were tiresome then. Like, as a horny teenager, I remember thinking, God, this is awful. So now it'd be a start. Although it was like, oh, God, this is awful, as I sort of, like, tapped my thighs nervously. Now I just think, no, no, I'm not watching this. Um, like, what was it called? The one because I used to see them in the video store, like ski. They always had like the the cover was always hand drawn, and it yeah. was like through a woman's legs as she was. Oh, yeah. If it was like on a basketball court, it'd be called something like basket yeah. boob, and it would just be like through their legs with like a chubby guy like peeking through the legs and like a or hot guy with a blonde. At- or you just go to the like the European art house section and look for any film by Tinto Brass because every single one of his <laughs> films, like on the front, would be some woman in like a, a mini skirt or something just bending over cheekily, and it's like, oh my god, this is just embarrassing, isn't it? But oh my god, yeah, Tinto Brass does sound like a name he's made up on the spot to the police. Um, a ski school is the one I was thinking of. There was a guy in the video store that used to come in that looked like um like a shrunk version of Bill Clinton, but Bill Clinton now, not then. So it's like it, it maybe he's just he just seems like a forward thinking guy. And he came in and he came up to the counter and said, Oh mate, I don't know if you can help, but um picking up something for me and my me and the missus tonight. You know, I gotta be quick because I'm waiting for a Chinese wing wah across the road. And he said thing is she likes, you know, she likes a bit of a story, you know, something a bit like a thriller. He said, I, I just like tits, mate. And uh, I said, if you turn around and look at the fourth line down there, you'll see 
a woman scorned with Shannon Tweed. <laughs> now, at certain parts, the VHS gets a bit grainy. <laughs> Almost like it's been paused hundreds of times by thousands of men. Um, so, uh, yeah, so it was always always recommend a, a, a Tweedy for those. Um, yeah, so you've done the Arkansas. Before we kick off, my um, my my random film title generator and my random film tagline generator machines are down but i did manage to get it to print off uh a print off just a little like it was on a dot matrix printer i found um right. so i just pressed the button got a print off so and what it told me was this is the tagline for this week a killer stalks the night you'll probably see him coming <laughs> Is he wearing Ivor's jacket? Well, I was thinking about this and I was looking at the printout because I thought, well, it's like a killer stalks the night, right? So the words killer and stalks in a tagline, it makes it sound like an 80s slasher, like in New York. And then you'll probably see him coming. Now, I didn't know if it was, if it was a killer stalks the night, you won't see him coming. It's like, okay, mm. he's invisible, he's full on. Or a killer stalks the night, you'll see him coming. So he's going to announce his yeah. arrival, but probably see him coming. Is, is sort of there's a bit of ambiguity there, isn't there? Yeah, there'd be no like, point in saying a killer stalks the night. You won't see him coming because it's sort of inherent in the first part of the sentence, isn't it? Really, like mm. if a killer stalks the night, you're thinking, well, you wouldn't mention night unless unless it was clear that you wouldn't see him coming. But probably see him coming. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah. So. But but then is it you'll is it you'll probably you'll probably see him coming like you say he's wearing a hive's jacket or he's got you know he's like a giant or something but is mm. it like a, a killer stalks the night you'll probably see him coming <laughs> yeah so um what would that what would that entail that would hmm. it's a tricky one isn't it because because it, it leaves something it leaves something open in, in fact it's quite intriguing really as far as taglines go you'll probably see him coming because it's like well if, if there's a probably there then that means there's 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 room for doubt isn't there i think as well uh, yeah if i if i was going to the cinema and there was and it was a black poster that says a killer stalks the night you'll probably see him coming with no context i would think oh uh, what, what, what do you mean probably <laughs> I, 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 there should be no trailer it should just be like you know something like don lafontaine just just saying those words but then if you break it down even further a killer stalks the night if he's stalking like you know like a, a section of the concept of time you're in, like as a human you're in no real threat anyway unless he's stalking darkness itself like he's creeping up on shadows like Bloody hell creeping up on shadows at night so he would he in order for him to sneak up on a shadow would have to be well lit to so well there you've got the yeah, title for the film there haven't you shadow creep all right so so it would be shadow creep a killer stalks the night you'll probably see him coming yeah so because you'd be, you'd... because the reason you'd see him coming is because you just see this weird guy like crouching and squatting and trying to get close to some slightly darker shadow somewhere well no he'd be in so you'd be outside i don't know john menzies or something enough to pick it up some juicy fruits to take home and then you'd walk outside and it would just be a really well-lit street like yeah. really well and there would just be a man in a trench coat standing in the light but trying to hide 
with his just no shadow and then trying in that light in trying to make himself look really inconspicuous to an abstract concept and then he would like thrust a dagger into some shadows and like ha got you but there would be no because of what he's doing there would be no like definitive end point because the night is doesn't exist as a, as yeah, a physical it's just being a cons- just a, it's just a concept yeah so so yeah. it's a conceptual killer yeah. who's got no real prey and is actually no threat to anyone. Which <laughs> really stands up as an 80s sexualist. No, no. Oh, I'd watch it, though. Yeah, obviously. It'd be be- it'd be better than that we'll probably throw that in there. Yeah, though I, maybe we'll see the word probably again. Who knows what the random generator will throw us. Um, so... What is the first film? The first film... I've got so many films here. Right. I'm, I'm going to try and keep some of them down to uh, a minimum. Um, so let's start off with a two-minute. Let's quickly go through Luca on Disney+. Plus. This is the latest Pixar movie, which is rather unceremoniously dumped onto Disney+, Plus, rather than into cinemas. And it wasn't even on the paid version of Disney Plus. It's just, it's just the freebie version. So it's like, okay, cheers, guys. But anyway, Pixar's loss is our gain because I think it's the best thing they've done in a good long while because their previous film was Soul, which I found to be a bit boring. Beautiful, but a bit boring. Onward was okay. Toy Story 4 was fine, but a bit unnecessary because it's number four. Um so I'd say it's their best since Coco, maybe since Inside Out. Um, it's set in this fictional Italian seaside town of Porto Rosso, which is notable because Judah Ghibli made a film called Porco Rosso once. And it's, this mm. film is actually a lot closer to Ghibli than it is to Disney in its kind of style and tone. So Luca himself so, is a... Sorry. I, I'm, I just want to say I'm fluent in Italian and Porto... Yeah. Porto Rosso actually yeah. translates as a uh, red port ribbon. Ah, oh, yeah, okay. Um, I believe you. Um, so Luca, he, he himself is he's a young sea monster who lives in the reef and he leads a boring life. And he's heard that if you go up to the surface, then you change into a human, kind of like a kind of like a mermaid type thing. Um, but his strict parents don't allow that sort of thing. He, and one day he meets this. Um, this brave boy called Alberto, who he effortlessly slips between the monster world and the human world. And they spark a close friendship and they spend a lot of time uh, out on dry land, playing in the countryside. And they're trying to build a Vespa because uh, it's Italian, obviously. Um, then they meet this young girl called Julia, who uh, agrees to help them try and win this triathlon competition in town, um, obviously in human form. Um mm. Uh, because they don't want to get found out. Um, so, and winning would get them the money to buy a Vespa, and then Luca and Alberto could ride off into the sunset together. Um, however, this local bully stands in the way, uh, who also intends to win the prize. Um, so, the aesthetic in the film is utterly gorgeous. It looks like a stop motion film, but ultra smooth. It's like really, really uh, tactile. It's gorgeous. Production design is pretty cool it's like a kind of timeless i guess it's got this like shabby chic 60s feel to it i guess um it's got 
really good music by Dan Romer, um, which is is really lush and orchestral, but it's punctuated by the these old Italian pop songs, which is nice. It's very funny and very sweet. The relationship between Luca and Alberto is unusually intimate, and and I suppose as a subtext, it could certainly be seen as a gay relationship with this kind of secret um, life they lead. But um, mm. but they have I've seen quite snooty articles um, saying how it was cowardly of Pixar not to make it explicit that it's a gay relationship. But I just think that's silly. There's no reason to sexualize these children, frankly. And the final message is absolutely not about realizing one's sexuality. So it's irrelevant. It's just a really nice story about friendship and you know, yeah, it's it's not sexualized. It's not sexualized the other way when they're straight. You don't watch Pixar films and it's like explicitly yeah. like children are in a, a le- relationship that's going to lead to sex at some point. Yeah, it doesn't need. Yeah. it really doesn't need that. Um, yeah, that particular overtone. But there you go. Um, it's pretty brief as well. It's I mean I don't even think it's ninety minutes and it's very positive. Uh, I guess it's kind of a bit slight compared with some other Pixar films, but I just think. More than that, it's just simple, but it's also very profound. I thought so. I, I really like that, Luca. Very good. Um, shall I just go straight into my next? Please, film? please do, Rupert. Just please got do. A little bit more to say about this is Pieces of a Woman, uh, which is on Netflix, and it was made in 2020. It's a family drama. It's it got loads and loads of award nominations but really few wins. I'm not quite sure why. Anyway, the opening scene is like, uh, I think it's a single shot. Yeah, it's a, it's just like a, a single shot sequence, which must go on for 15, 20 minutes. It's a childbirth sequence, but it's, mm. it, it's <laughs> well, um, Vanessa Kirby, um, the mother, she's about to give birth. Shia LaBeouf is her partner, and he's trying to help her through the process, and the nurse arrives uh, to help them out. And it's a it's just an amazing piece of drama. The first the opening sequence is so gripping because it's it's got all of the kind of real birth stuff, all the grossness, all the embarrassment, weirdness, the small talk, the kind of wonder, the trauma, and it's a real it's a really dramatic cold open. Um I would say what follows that isn't quite as powerful, but it's still pretty decent, I suppose. So afterwards, I mean um, it's difficult to really talk about it without spoilers, <laughs> to be honest. But um, it's there is a, a certain tragedy in the film which um, which occurs, which triggers everything else that comes afterwards. And it's it's really about the emotional fallout between um, Vanessa Kirby and Shia Booth and their kind of total breakdown in communication, really. Um, and it's it's got this kind of like ongoing metaphor like uh, charlotte he's an engineer who's building a bridge and throughout the film as time passes you see the bridge get gradually completed more and more as the months go by so it's a pretty obvious metaphor but there you go so you get as all this kind of like uh, this relationship is collapsing really you get the usual stuff like depressing sex and rouse affairs family strife um Pretty standard fare, I guess, but it's exceptionally well acted by Vanessa Kirby and Charlotte Booth. I think Vanessa Kirby was nominated for an Oscar. Um, and it's 
it's very dialogue driven driven so that's good it's not one of those art house dramas where people sit around in silence and you get really tedious long shots of people sitting alone framed elegantly against an unforgiving world it's just people talking and often very awkwardly um i i'd be interested to hear someone else's thoughts actually on the family dynamics because the mother in the film i think she's a person of true evil uh and it's 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 yeah again i don't want to i don't want to give any spoilers but mm. she essentially she absolutely hates charlotte Booth's character and basically she's trying to buy him out of the family just offering him money to go away which is pretty brutal given everything that's going on um I'd say that the final section of the film, it, it, it swings into very formulaic, formulaic territory. And it has this bizarre, like grandstanding court scene towards the end. And I thought this is very out, out of keeping with the more subtle uh, nature of the rest of the film. Uh, so that was a bit disappointing. It does. It, it is a film that starts brightly and, and dwindles, I'd say. But overall, it's a pretty solid drama and two brilliant performances from Vanessa Kirby and Charlotte Booth. Um, but there are just too many unconvincing plot shifts and melodramatic moments towards, towards the end, I'd say, to really sustain it. But again, Charlotte Booth being great. Still haven't seen a bad film with a minute. This is the thing, isn't it? We were talking about this uh, not so long ago. That I know he, he got a really weirdly bad rap, and he almost to a point became a figure of fun in the in in the papers. And I thought, I've never seen him in in anything bad. Um, admittedly, yeah. the pinnacle of his career was um, in Elastic Heart, the CM Music video yes. <clears throat> with that girl Madeline. But um, that's all I need to see, to be honest. Um, yeah. This sounds like a film I that isn't at my, my particular strasser. Possibly, but I am no. I, I am intrigued on on uh, someone else's thoughts on it. I might um I might just bully fan into watching it. It's it is worth a watch for the <clears throat> for the um yeah for the for the performances more than anything. It's not a film that you'd want to watch if you were pregnant, for example. <laughs> oh that would God. be about we it, w- when she was. We turned so many films off after about fifteen minutes. I know. I know. Um, I know. Just I, think I, same. Yeah, can't can't yeah. do it. Can't do it. I just realised, by the way. Sorry to interrupt, but um, I just realised that Three Thousand Miles to Graceland, the next film we're going to talk about, which I watched about three weeks ago, so it's going to be a bit spotty for me. One of the producers is Andrew Stevens, who was in all the body chemistry softcore pornos in the nineties with Yes, Shannon Tweed. Wow. It looks like he's. It looks like he left softcore porn and, and erotic thrillers and went into producing, and he's doing pretty well. That's quite good. Um, um, Christopher Nolan's DP Wally Fister didn't he used to work in porn? I'm, I'm, the fact that his name's know. Wally Fister as well. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah. <laughs> he must. have thought I do porn. He made his. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 I do. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that punctured your punchline, didn't it? Um, yeah. Ha, 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 ha. Um, <clears throat> didn't he yeah, direct a so, He directed a movie, didn't he? Yeah, what was it called? Is it was Transcendence? It the I, yes, it was Transcendence. Yeah, I forget. There are a few with similar names around that time. Um, so, yeah, um, you've only, how many films have you got? Four. Four. Nothing. 
Um, so yeah, I watched Three Thousand Miles to Graceland, um, yes. which is um, a film from two thousand and one, and it's a film that I've seen multiple times over the years because um, it falls into a weird category in my head. Like I don't know if you've heard of a film called Blackmail, which also has Bukim, but it's blackmail is in M A L E, and I don't know if you remember. I, th- I think it's a post-Tarantino thing where this is directed by someone called Damien Lichtenstein. No idea who he is, and he you cannot you cannot click on his name on Wikipedia. So I don't know what he's done. It's a terribly received film, but I always remember it as being. Um, I mean, when it came out in two thousand and one, I would have been about like seventeen or eighteen, and I remember enjoying it a lot. And I think the reason I enjoyed it was because it was nasty. Um, in the same way that blackmail is it's just like quite a quite a mean-spirited nasty film and obviously at the time it must be what i was attracted to because i was probably a teenager thinking oh this is like an in this is a film for adults it's it's like lots of violence and swearing and it's quite harsh i think three thousand monster graceland is an interesting film to watch because it's not it got slated at the time and even and it's a film even as i watched it again now a few weeks ago I, I want it to be better than it is because of the cast. Because you've got David Arquette, Bakeem Woodbine, Christian Slater, Kurt Russell, Kevin Costner, Courtney Cox, and Kevin Pollock, right? And mm. and jo- John Lovitz, who I'm pretty sure has never been funny. Um, <laughs> pr- pretty sure, thinking back to him in stuff like Mr. Destiny, has he ever been funny? Um, yeah, I'm so, struggling. Wasn't he in uh, Three Amigos? He was quite funny in that, wasn't he? Was Maybe. he? No, no, that was... That was Martin Short, Chevy Chase, and Steve Martin, isn't it? Oh yeah, sorry. Um, so yeah, I, I think, I think in this film he may have like one. I think he may have had in his entire career like less than five good moments, and it it doesn't, it doesn't. Uh, it, it's why I don't watch comedies because for me the hit rate. If if I'm not laughing every every forty seconds, and I'd rather be watching a really foul horror from the seventies. So. The, 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 this is um, Three Thousand Miles to Graceland. Uh, they are all dressing up as Elvis impersonators to rob a casino in Vegas, and the the robbery they get the money, but they have to kill a load of people in in doing it. And then there's double crossing, and it basically turns into a, a road trip where Kurt Russell uh, stops for the night with his share of the cash and bumps into Courtney Cox and her son. They haven't got a father figure. They sort of get together that he doesn't know if he can trust or not and kevin costner's hot on the trail trying to get the money back and that is effectively the film and there's a lot of um elvis references flying around um i think is it been 20 years yes it has been 20 years so i, I can't yeah. spoil it the, the problem with this is when they start off and you've got booking woodbine who is admittedly barely in the film and you've got christian slater dave arquette they're all quite strong strong characters admittedly painted in broad strokes but they when they have their they're very different personalities and and there's good interaction going on there but then most of them just get killed off in the first 15 minutes and what you're left with is a film where it's just kevin costner after kurt russell and as i i I will go as far as saying i would say this film is where courtney cox is at her absolute most beautiful but pushing Mm -hmm. that aside he stops for the night with courtney cox and and basically just shags her and then the son nicks his wallet. And through a turn of events, it, uh, it ends up with Courtney Cox just taking all the money and leaving his son and Kurt Russell is just at this like cafe and just drives off with all this money. And then when they catch up with her later on, um, 
he says you just you were just going to leave us if we hadn't if i hadn't have like chased and tracked you down you would have just left your son and me with the money and then she sort of says this weird monologue where it's no no i didn't leave him i didn't leave him with no one i left him with you and then they fall in love and i thought "Mm." but she would have left wouldn't she she would have like completely abandoned a child and the whole film has that feel to it like with kevin costner Kevin Costner almost plays a sort of Michael Madsen role in that film I, w- I watched in the last episode. Oh, God, what was it called? With, <clears throat> oh, it's got the same, Fear Game, I think it's called, or whatever it was, with um, Michael Madsen chasing down um, Alec Baldwin and, and uh, Kim Basinger. And he plays that sort of role where it's just him after someone else doing foul things along the way. And it's not enough. And when you've got that him just being unpleasant whoever he meets and just shooting people and, and like raping and murdering and then you cut to this this weirdly twisted well supposedly twisted love story but actually just badly written because mm. it, it, it's it all feels like a load of scenes with certain lines in stapled to a wall and no one connected the dots so think people fall in love and you think no they're just very unpleasant people you wouldn't, yeah. you wouldn't fall in love with that person um and then it all ends in a big silly firefight and i when it finished i just thought that film could have been a lot better if mm-hmm. they either focus on the road trip part or if they all stuck together and it was more banter driven because the scenes at the start when they're all like arguing and bickering are really good because they're all good actors yeah um but in in pulling the rug out from under you by saying haha you know half of these people die you know off screen it actually, mm-hmm. you just think, oh, so right, I'm just watching like a really tedious love story then. And then Kevin Costa smoking fags and driving in a sparkly suit. Yeah, it's worst ways to spend your time, I suppose. I mean, <laughs> with, the thing is, with a cast like that, it's you just, it's got to be watchable at least, right? It's, but then, I, would, I suppose I, if half the cast had gone after 20 minutes, then it defeats the object, really, doesn't it? I think one of the reasons as well that I really loved this film as a, or really enjoyed watching it, um, I'd say it's probably seen about 10, 10 to 15 times over the last 25 years, is is because this was, if you think about it, 2001, Kurt Russell had a massive break from acting after he did like Poseidon in 2004 or five, And mm. I think this was the last, to me, action film that he did. And and I think that's why I kept returning to it because I missed him as an actor, right. and and oh, and he did like Grindhouse, or whatever. But um, and I think that's why I want. And every time I go back, I think, oh. Oh, come on, I want, I want to like this more, um, but I don't. Yeah. And also, there is a uh, what's it called, like a, a a credit sequence where, which is one of those painful things I've ever seen. <laughs> and it is, it is. They've obviously told the cast right, so it's them against like a, a green screen backdrop of Vegas and stuff, and they're dancing, but like with guns and like pointing the guns at the camera and pretending to shoot, and really? it is, it is awful. It's really, especially Kevin Costner because he's clearly just really embarrassed. And I think, like, don't. This is awful and painful. It's worth watching the credit sequence because it's it's cringeworthingly embarrassing. It's it's awful, awful. <laughs> John Lovitz was in Three Amigos. The fact that oh, he was, was he? we don't really remember him suggests that he probably wasn't funny in it. So I vaguely remember him being like a film producer. Maybe. <laughs> that's it, is it? Okay. Yeah, that's as, that's as far so, as I got. So yeah, 3000 Miles to Graceland, it's yeah. on Amazon Prime. And I would recommend that people watch it because it, it captures a very specific moment in 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 action where they could get the budget to get all these all these people together, but they didn't yeah. know what to do with them, which is something that we'll talk about later mm. on in Suicide Squad. Yeah, it sounds then like actually it was a 
a amazing cast squandered, really, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. I, this I would have be been so- this would have been just when Kevin Costner was kind of reimagining himself as a bit more of an anti-hero, I guess. Before he did the amazing Mr. Villain. Brooks, the best thing he's ever yes. done, yes. Because I guess this would have been, when was this, 98 or... 2001! 2001! So it was, it was quite a bit after The Postman, but that was really the nail in the coffin of his Epic hero sagas, yeah. Um, you could, okay. you could call it 2001, an Elvis odyssey. I think I think I won't, to be honest. But, oh, by the way, speaking um, about Elvis, the, the music in the film is absolutely abhorrent. It's like spine shank and stuff like that. It's terrible music. I, again, I just assumed that Brian Tyler done it because it was just loads of awful music that I specifically dislike. But no, no he wasn't involved. <laughs> oh, singling out Brian Tyler. Um, <laughs> um, all right, let me blast through some two minutes here. Um, mm-hmm. Let's get these out of the way. Uh First one, Fatherhood, which is on Netflix. This Hang on now, is... Fatherhood or Fatherhood? Fatherhood. Hang not on, I, father. think, I think you've talked about this because I made that same joke last time. Oh yeah, maybe. Oh god, it's, 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 we've come <laughs> it's to obviously that. an amazing film, man. <laughs> god, it's so forgettable. Yeah, this is one with Kevin Hart. Have I spoken about this? Yes, you have. Yes. Yeah, all right. We'll skip that one then. <laughs> It wasn't very good. That's okay. Weird, you know. uh, how, did I talk about the night clerk? Uh, no, but I really like this film, so I want to. I'm looking forward to hearing about it because I've covered this in a previous one, I think. Um. Yeah. I. Uh. I quite well. Okay. I think it's a pretty silly film. I'll just say that it's okay. Written and directed by Michael Christopher, who interestingly. He played the FBI agent in Die Hard with a Vengeance who chooses glasses, which I found quite an odd little bit of trivia. Say um, that again, sorry? Michael Christopher, who wrote and directed this, he played the yeah. FBI agent in Die Hard with a Vengeance, who, you know, the one who chews on his glasses. Oh, God, yes. Yeah. Oh, well, okay. Um, because I, I looked, I saw his picture. And I thought, I, I know what I'm hanging about. Um, anyway, so yes, this is the one in which Ty Sheridan plays Bart, who's a young man with Asperger's. Uh, he works as a night clerk on in a hotel, watching CCTV endlessly. He sets up a bunch of cameras in the rooms, and he watches people interact. He's like trying to learn social interactions. So it's a bit fanciful already, but yeah, okay. I'm, I will I will say that this was one of the things I said in my review I, I distinctly remember is that mm. I'm not sure how it, the um, Asperger's is, is presented but I like I think I like Ty Sheridan so much that mm. I was I sort of got sucked into the film yes definitely oh, 100% it completely rides on him um, so he witnesses a murder and because he's obviously the first on the scene and subsequently unable to properly sort of process the this traumatic event and because he has cameras set up everywhere he does become somewhat of the main suspect um uh, john however john leguizamo trying to question a heavy heavily autistic kid isn't an interesting film in itself so they throw in anna de armas the knock knock blade runner nice out lady as a kind of sultry subplot it's quite ambiguous because she's 
very attracted to Bart and you're wondering if she's genuine or not or just taking advantage. It gets a bit twisty and a bit Hitchcockian and the ending is just a bit confusing, really. Um, I So I don't think you watch it for the plot, really. No. It's like... It's like they had a shell of a script and it was a bit cliched. So they, it's like the, imagine you've got a really cliched, basic, bare bones script and then you throw in loads of ridiculous events to kind of liven it up, which I suppose keeps it watchable, but it is very silly. Um, but yeah, it's all about Sheridan's performance, really, which by all accounts is astonishingly accurate. And my wife has obviously worked with a lot of autistic adults and she thought it was spot on with all the kind of it's all the kind of facial tics and the responses he was giving to questions and his inability to kind of process open questions stuff like that and especially the the lack of eye contact the the, like the wandering eyes thing uh, is apparently extremely accurate so yeah it's just a pity it's not in a better film i wouldn't say uh but yeah i mean it's ty sheridan he is the real deal and yeah. the fact that he can do stuff like this and then do something like Ready Player One and then do something like Mud or Joe or whatever, then shows that, you know, he's definitely, yeah, he's definitely the real deal. So, I, I, yeah, I'm a big worth fan. It I, I, I think as well that you saying that it's the bare bones of a, of, a, of a script and it just all resides on him. I think I was so happy with, with just looking at him and like the quieter the film was and the more time that was just spent on, on focus on him doing his thing like i was totally fine with it and um yeah i think that's what really drew me to it i can't really remember the plot i just remember how much i liked ty sheridan in the film so yeah the ending is a bit of a confusing mess did you mention in your review last time i can't remember helen hunt that she looks a bit odd <laughs> just a bit just a bit yes. yeah yeah this is when I thought I thought she was ill because then after this I watched another film about uh, people who it's called frog froggers or something where people people who like l- sort of squat in other people's houses when they're there and like live in the attic and stuff and yeah she looks the same in that and I thought oh she is she ill um, but mm. I, I don't know I don't know if she's ever worked on or something but I don't know whether yeah. she's ever worked on or what but yeah I mean she never was like a classical beauty exactly but she she had a kind of nice face but now it's very severe it seems very and waxy looking yeah yeah odd yeah she looks like a waxwork of herself um i know what this title is going to be called (laughs) (laughs) um i'm gonna quickly just talk about johnny mnemonic for no good reason it exists it's on prime this is uh, made in 1995 sci-fi action thriller directed by some music director Music video director, I don't know who he is. Um, Robert Long. I wish I could say his name, but I haven't written it down. But it's Robert, um, Robert Longo, and he, yeah, it is. It's just music videos, and then, yeah. and then this. That's it. That's his career. <laughs> so it's set in 2021, which was a nice little surprise. Um, and oh, yeah. the the internet has caused societal collapse through some poorly defined condition called nerve attenuation syndrome so johnny played by keanu reeves he's hired to transport 320 gigabytes of data in his brain um this data is very important japanese gangsters are hunting him down to 
get the data, but the world really needs to know what's in his head. So he's he's on his way to upload it into a dolphin or something, and so he can get out of himself. And yeah, so that's it really. And Keanu Reeves, he has like a buzz cut in this film with no with strictly no sideburns. It's really weird looking. So he. Uh, <laughs> So Johnny, Johnny, he he's a trained assassin, right? But, but he, throughout the film, he becomes increasingly frustrated with people trying to kill him, you know, even though it's his job. But you know, so by the end, he's literally having temper tantrums like a child. He and weirdly, he by the end, he looks really gaunt and emaciated. Like it's it, it's not makeup. I genuinely wonder if he was having health issues at the time. He looks so odd towards the end. I don't know what was going on. Um, so that's one reason to watch it, I guess. The casting is absolutely baffling in this film. Dolph Lundgren, he rocks up as this preacher assassin. Henry Rollins, he provides one of the worst performances I've ever seen. He's cast as like a scientist. Henry Rollins. Um, Ice Cube, uh, he plays someone called Low Tech, a street gang leader. Dina Meyer, Dina Meyer, she from Starship she, Troopers. Yeah, she tries slumming it as a junkie, but she just looks amazing the whole time. And yeah, it's just bizarre casting. The I would say that the although the I mean the the idea of him storing like 320 gigabytes in his head is kind of silly, but in a way, the low tech actually makes a kind of sense from a security perspective. The idea that they would not use any kind of internet to transfer this data, but want it to be passed physically in physical form basically as a security measure i can understand that but i don't think that's what they had in mind at all i just think they didn't i just think they didn't predict super fast internet and they did not predict the demise of vhs in this film by the way they're still using those bad boys don't you worry this this is written by william gibson as well the, but the, it's based on john one by william gibson who obviously did neuromancer and stuff so yeah. It's um it, it to be basically you've just said that like cult nineteen ninety five hit Johnny Mnemonic isn't as prescient as Runaway from nineteen eighty six with Tom Selleck. So good. What just, is that 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 is a good double bill, by the way, thinking about it. You oh, should watch yeah. both of those. And then you should watch all of the episodes of the bill. Um <laughs> Um, twice to make it a double look, bill um i'm i'm looking at the the poster and dolph Lundgren has got like joint billing with keanu reeves he is not in it enough to warrant that he must be in it for 10 minutes maybe tops yeah it's mostly keanu reeves just having tantrums and dina mayer trying to calm him down there are constant dutch angles the editing is terrible the futurism is totally nonsensical the, the script is shocking and it's the performances from the actors, who some of whom are fine, but it's like it's a sign of poor direction, I guess, when the actors clearly don't know whether to like um, stick or twist, I'd put it, as in they don't know. It's like they're not aware of how far to push it. Like, am I in a joke film or am I in a serious film or am I kind of playing this with a bit of irony? So you'll get some performances which are dead serious and others which are just totally over the top and silly. Um, yeah, and there there is a bit of there's a bit of like VR internet stuff where he 
in a kind of like proto minority report way he go he puts a headset on and gets his gloves out and starts like really clunkily um uh like negotiating a ui through this like terrible 3d um cg representation so that is quite fun i quite like that bit in a really bad lawnmower man type of way but that if the rest of the film had that same tone it'd be fine if it was just really silly but it's also super violent really foul mouths and quite mean-spirited as well it reminded me of the look of it reminded me of super mario brothers to be honest but at least yeah, Super Mario Bros. I know what you mean, like lo- the... lots of like wires, wet wires yeah, everywhere, and yeah. dark, through, yeah, yeah, like like darkness, but really cut through with like gaudy lighting and stuff. And but at least Super Mario Brothers had the saving grace of being essentially wholesome. This doesn't have that. It just is quite mean. So it's a terrible film. It's a really bad film. Mm. The mid nineties were not ke- kind to Keanu Reeves. I'm We're trying not. to think of what, considering he's in the film for 10 minutes, I'm trying to think of what Dolph Lundgren would have been doing at the time to warrant top billing with Keanu Reeves. Yeah. Who would have just come off stuff like My Own Private Idaho and things well, like that. Well, Universal Soldier would have been not long before this. That's 91, yeah. Mm. Which is, bon- bonus question, Universal Soldier on the Mega Drive is a reskin of which Amiga game, Rupert? Tarakan? I think it might be Super Turrican or Turrican. Yeah, yeah, you're one of those. Turrican, yeah, you're right. Um, it was so obviously every skin as well, wasn't it? The first, even the even, animation. Even, that, yeah. even the hidden box at the start when you go left and just shoot above your head and get loads of pickups that you'll yeah. never understand. And uh, and then the first boss being just a massive Dolph Lundgren face. Good. Um, I watched Fear Street Part 1, 1994. Okay. Tellingly, I haven't watched the second and third parts. Um. <laughs> I so this is a film I didn't realize right that this was written or based on the books by R.L. Stein a, a list of books for teenagers called Fear Street and I don't know why but I've had it in my head that R.L. Stein was a pen name for lots of people to you know just like write Goosebumps books apparently oh. real dude real dude oh, right, um, okay so I I I watched them and I thought I'd learned that that was a nice bit of trivia. Uh, and I, this is a film when I was watching it because I didn't realize until I saw the name R.L. Stein, it's very much aimed at teenagers. But I think we've talked uh, in this podcast before about how irritating it is. I mean, I've only seen a handful of episodes of what's it called that one that really romanticizes the 80s, that TV show that I've not Stranger Things. Stranger Things. I. I just find it boring when the whole film is basically someone behind my back just pointing like a red laser dot at posters on the wall and like pointing and and smiling when certain bits of music kick in, which is effectively what makes up this film. So it's if you imagine it's it's a film made in 2021 that's really romanticizing 1994. So it starts off and it's this, these two towns. And I think one of them's called like Brownville and the other one's called like Smiley Place. And <laughs> it's just two towns that have a football game uh, and they're always at odds with each other because one's supposedly cursed and one's all happy and joyful. And it starts off with a girl called, uh, well, actually, at the very start of the film begins with a, a girl who works in a store getting killed by her friend who like moments before was just really friendly and was going to walk her home and then the next time she sees him he's sort of possessed and dressed up in this weird 
effectively like a scream mask with a skull face and a cloak and just hacks it a bit. It cuts mm. forward and we find out that this is uh, a, the newest in a series of killings that have sort of plagued the town. And uh, the main, I watched this a little while ago, so I'm going to have to do a bit of cheating yet. Uh, Dina, played by Kiana Madeira, um, is a sort of streetwise young girl who uh, is in a relationship with someone else from this other town. And I will find out the name of the towns, actually. One second. Is this a, yeah, so so the bad town is Shadyside. The, the, like, the nice town is Sunnyvale. So I was kind of Come right. On. Um, and the, the film was on. It turns into just a t- really typical 80s slasher, effectively. So they 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 disturb the bones in this forest, and her her girlfriend, um, uh, Dina's girlfriend, is beginning to get possessed by this ancient witch, and then they they decide to try and look at the get her sorry get Dina's brother who's hip steep and a bit of a nerd in all of these this local history to find out how they can get rid of this curse and get rid of the witch. And it's just them being just uh, chased effectively by killers throughout history that, that have that have uh, committed murders in this town. The, the The problem is that no, very few people in this film are likable, uh, and mm. it's 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 again it's written in broad strokes. So, you, for instance, you start off with this girl Dina, who is just quite irritating and mouthy, and you've got her brother, who's quite nerdy and hip steep in into the lore of all these murders even though mm. they've only been like five separate instances of murders throughout the decades and it's almost like they're, they're so busy putting in pieces of music by like creep by radiohead nirvana Soundgarden, mm-hmm. all good stuff but but at random points when it doesn't make any sense to the plot it's just like oh shit we haven't you know we haven't reminded them it's 1994 for a few minutes quick check something on <laughs> and you get a blast of like black hole sun by sound garden and then it'll kind of fade out at an odd time and and i was watching it and it happens so often right with the music that i thought are they going to release uh, like an accompanying soundtrack because it would cost yes, a fortune all of the stuff and they they have they've released a limited edition vinyl and i genuinely believe it's just because these bursts of music just seem to happen for like random amounts of time and fade in and out just to get every song and so people want to collect the soundtrack um and it's visually the same thing with posters when they're indoors you will not be able to get away from posters of like the Smashing Pumpkins or mm. mid, it's probably a Johnny Mnemonic poster kicking around <laughs> that kind of thing um and I was so sort of dist- irritatedly distracted by all that stuff. I, I began to think I'm not the target audience for this because not only am I not thinking back to the books as a teenager. So I'm not a man in his late thirties looking back thinking, Oh God, I remember these books. So this would be a cool film. I remember this reference or whatever. I, I am a person who didn't read those books watching romanticized versions of, of, of a decade that I just think this is just irritating me now. All of the characters are unlikable, and also they, they they seem to exist to do very specific things. So there's a bit where they're trapped in um they're being attacked by one of the killers, and they're in a I think they're in like a locker in a school or something, and then all of a sudden the nerdy kid just remembers a vital piece of a very memorable and obvious information uh, that saves them at that point. And I thought, well, if you if you are literally the nerd because you're known as like the guy obsessed with these killings, and there's only been five murderers over 40 years that's not much information to study in 1994 pre-internet is it like a couple of newspapers so why are you suddenly remembering things at key points in the film there's a there's a guy who's supposed to be the um uh, well there's there's two people in that really piss me off actually the the main 
sort of best friend is just a drug dealer and at the start of the film you see her sharing out drugs to get to her two younger sisters who she's looking after who are literally like like preteen saying right put put the different color pills into piles and don't take them or you'll die but then later on in the film we're supposed to look back and think, oh no, she. In fact, the the, the characters explicitly stated, oh, she wasn't a junkie. She was, she was a good friend. She was so much more. And I think, no, I've just watched ninety minutes of her being a complete twat, actually. So <laughs> I I think that you're romanticizing some sort of memory that I'm not I'm not party to. And there's a there's a her friend. It was just this really like foul teenager. Um, is just constantly just saying and doing foul things throughout the film. And at the end, boom, they oh yeah, he was he worked so hard for his family again. I just watched an hour and 30 minutes of him making me dry heave. So where's that that coming from? And then the film has the absolute cheek at the end to throw out all the rules it's set down uh, just to open up a sequel. So so the film, basically all of the the film and and all the the monsters and the the killers and the witch all follow, follow these very set patterns and rules that are laid down. And at the end of the film, it's like, oh, actually, pull the rug away. Oh, there were no rules. And I think, well, so why weren't you all just dead within seconds then? Why <laughs> you shouldn't have done that? And it put me off it put me off the rest of the trilogy. Um, because especially because hmm. the next one is set in the seventies and I really like seventies rock and I just when Leonard Skinner kicks in, I know I'm just gonna kick my VHS player into space. <laughs> um Yeah. Unlikable characters. That's not a problem in itself, but if the film goes out of its way to try and excuse them or misrepresent them, even Mm. despite what you've just seen, that's a problem in it, because that's really disingenuous. I was a bit dubious at the start, because the events that sort of kick off the film is Dina goes to see, I think, you don't know at the time, she's got a girlfriend called Samantha, but she keeps on saying Sam. And when she goes to the Sunnyvale town to sort of cheerlead this thing, you see her looking at, assume it's a guy, but she's actually gay and she likes the girl. And you're like, okay, right. That's a nice little twist, I suppose. But then on the way, when she finds out that this girl Sam is with this bloke, she opens at the back of the bus when these friends are driving behind and unloads a load of liquid on the floor that causes the car to spin off and crash. So she effectively, because her ex-girlfriend has got with someone else, she tries to murder four people in a car. And <laughs> and like, and you think, this is not someone I can root for. That's not like some silly teenage prank. prank. <laughs> yeah, that's attempted murder. Um, <laughs> and yeah, it just goes on like that. And you just think, these who wrote this film? It just seems it seems like it's talking down to teenagers yeah so i haven't read the book but that's the vibe i got anyway right oh that doesn't sound good no um when it was so there's three parts on there when's the other one set then i think the next one is set in in the, the like 74 oh here we go uh 1978 1978 mm. and then the fear street part three is 1666 um, so at least they can't have any songs that piss me off in that one of posters of bloody Delamitri on the wall. <laughs> Just break into harps accord every few minutes. Um, <laughs> yeah, I probably won't bother with that. When Halloween came out, I guess. I think they're trying to go for two things. I think they're trying to get people who read the books and who are probably now vinyl collectors as a franchisey thing so they can just like spend money on merchandise. And they're trying to get in the teen horror thing. And it failed on both mm. counts for me. Okay. Um, yeah, I'll watch that then. But it's on Netflix, is it? 
Okay. I, I'm going to start talking about 70s sci-fi now. So then, yeah, I had a little, a little, I, I went on a massive of um, watching 70s and early 80s sci-fi. Um, so I started with Silent Running. Um, only thing is, none of these are available on free services, so to speak. I say free, but you know what I mean. Silent Running is Bruce Dern, isn't it? Bruce Stern, yes. Does so, he look young then, or is he still just... <laughs> just he's always looked about 75. Um, the story is this flotilla of massive ships called Valley Forge. They contain the last of Earth's forests and wildlife, and they're flying through space, deep space, and Bruce Stern is their protector, um, constantly wearing a smock obviously uh his three crewmates are basically frat bros who just want to go home then they get a call from um like command saying purge the forests and come home now bruce dern is perturbed at this idea because he obviously doesn't want to destroy the forests. um and he has to go to homicidal lengths to save the forests from being purged so this was the debut directorial film for Douglas Trumbull in 1972. Douglas Trumbull worked with Kubrick a few years earlier on 2001 because he's a special effects guy. Uh, the budget here is much lower than 2001 A Space Odyssey. Uh, but there, there are some cool ship designs and models and the general production design is quite charming I suppose. Like you've got CRT screens everywhere, you've got chunky keyboards, you've got shambling robots which clearly got dwarves inside um i was huey dewey and louie and um and you can hear the sounds of valve technology constantly clicking away in the background so that's good so it's quite charming it's basically us the audience and bruce stern going mad for two-thirds of the movie really and he is perfectly cast because he he obviously looks like a hippie anyway mm. but he has this perennially haunted expression and this quite manic temperament anyway so he's really well cast and he's basically having conversations with cheap looking robots don't answer back so and, and the fact that this doesn't seem absurd is actually quite affecting in the end because it's a testament to his quality really as an actor that he kind of sells this descent into madness um i don't think it's fully compatible with modern concerns about climate change because Bruce Stern explain, explains that on Earth, everywhere is um, balmy and there's no disease anywhere. It's like a utopian Earth. Um, and he's just talking about retaining nature for the sake of beauty and wonder. So it's not about human survival or anything. Um, yeah, so it, it does warn of our general disregard for nature, I suppose, um, in a world, especially which, where it has no perceived utility anyway. In the end, I think it's, more of a a cautionary tale about our relationship with the environment less less of cautionary tale about our relationship with the environment sorry but more about our relationship with each other because yeah he he does what he does which is essentially kill off the other the crew in order to save nature but then of course he just goes completely bonkers and becomes a cruel and vicious person by purely by being so alone and so i think really it's saying that ultimately you know he tries reprogramming the robots and stuff to play 
games with him and stuff but they just it's not like being with humans and it's about it's about the need to have other humans around you to stave off the madness and just to support each other i suppose it could also be seen in the context of the kind of fading of that late 60s summer of love vibe because he's kind of the last hippie desperately clutching to the dream while the reality of coming back down to earth literally looms um the soundtrack has several acoustic folk songs which firmly place it in 1970s and they're quite insufferable to be honest um i actually think this film is quite ripe for a remake i think if you get a strong actor you could rejig the plot quite easily to have it about modern concerns about climate change and that that'd be fine because it is a it is a strong and unique vision but it's also dated on many levels so um it's i would say it's charming to watch it now but pretty tough going if you're used to you know visual effects just don't look like literally a child's toy on a string <laughs> against a black cloth <laughs> so, yeah um, that, it does seem it could be updated when, when so. he's uh, when he's reprogramming the, the robots to play games with them does it show like him like opening the back panel and then like sort of playing with like a soldier iron for a couple of seconds and then putting it back up and then the robot turns to face him and then bruce dinn says right this is an Xbox 360 controller. We're going to play Bioshock Infinite, okay? <laughs> no, he's actually reprogrammed the robots to complete Dark Souls on maximum difficulty. With a Donkey um, Kong. With a donkey. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty amazing, really. Yeah, then he uploads it to YouTube as a speed run. Oh, it's funny. If imagine it was that prescient. It'd be <laughs> Um, it doesn't even bother thinking about future technology. This film really doesn't. Doesn't give a hoot. It was it, it's, it's um, early seventy one or two, something like that, isn't it? It's very early seventies. Yeah, very early seventies. Yeah, but as you'll see, certain other films I've seen are, are better at kind of uh, predicting the future. Um, I'll I'll talk about two thousand and ten now because this okay. is a film I have. Um, it's also it's 2010, the year we made contact or make contact. Um, it's obviously a sequel to 2001: A Space Odyssey. Um, <laughs> right. Just, that yes. must have been. They must have been big shoes to fill. Yeah. Well, it was. It was made in 1984, so it was quite a while afterwards. Um, and it's directed by Peter Himes. And Kubrick was very gracious with Peter Himes. He, I mean, he gave him bless, his blessing to make the movie. And all he wanted was for Peter Himes to make it his own, basically. So, and he, he does. It is a very different film to the original, uh, and it's much more plot and dialogue driven. And it's more interested in providing answers than questions, I would say. Uh, so, anyway, the the monolith that was encountered by Bowman at the end of two thousand one is still up there, floating between Jupiter and Io. So, the Russians approach the Americans about joint mission to the Discovery, which is the ship from the first film. Um, and it's drifting towards Io, so it's a race against time before it's destroyed, so they have to get up there and find out what happened. It's a really good cast. Helen Mirren and Bob Alabama are in there, and Roy Scheider play, is the main role, plays Hayward Floyd. Um, Russian crew, uh, who they go with, deeply suspicious of Roy Scheider when he wakes up from hypersleep, 
uh, they won't give them any answers and they won't cooperate. And the reason is for because of political tensions back on Earth. So it's a really absurd plot point that this whole Russian crew is just really awkward with him because of some political machinations going on on Earth, which, of course, also just puts it firmly into Cold War territory, which, again, massively dates the film. Um, so this sense of mystery inherent to the first film is rather contrived here because the real the only real mystery is because the crew are speaking Russian all the time and they're making Roy Scheider into an outsider who no one speaks to. So it's it, it it's real it's a real relief when Bob Alaban and John Lithgow wake up, thank God. So <laughs> yeah, they uh, It's always a relief when John Lithgow wakes up, especially at his age. <laughs> he's he's just he, again, another man who's always looked seventy. Um yeah, there's um there's really good special effects. Really good special effects, great model work and lighting, nicely framed, really well made. Production design absolutely matches the original, I'd say. Uh, does have a tendency, the film, to just constantly revisit bits, sets from the original, which is, uh, well, I suppose, it's, I suppose it's kind of inevitable, but also means that it's like, right, okay, yes, 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 okay, we've seen this before. Yes, it's nice to see Halligan, etc. Um, there's a lot of voiceover in this to fill the gaps in the storytelling as well. So you get a lot of these messages home and news reports, and, and they're all explicitly to explain people's inner thoughts and provide a political context to it, uh, which is, yeah, which you wouldn't have seen in, in the original at all. So it's, it takes a bit of getting used to, shall we say. So I, I looked up some reviews from the time and they were pretty much bang on, actually. They said it's not really a patch on the original in terms of the scope or profundity or the downright weirdness, frankly. But it is a solid sci-fi movie in its own right. I mean, it is basically pointless because unless you have a real burning desire to be given more context for the events of the first film, which I'm not sure, well, I don't, but there may be those who do, I suppose. Um, and at least it still retains the central mystery about the monolith, how it's almost a religious artifact and it's beyond human reckoning. Um, but it, it is still driving humans to reach for the stars and improve themselves, which is so they kept that basic core element of the original. Um, there's a really cool synth school, um, which is nice, which is always good. And I liked, I thought the end was quite cool. Uh, quite scary. It's quite, uh, it's really odd, kind of. It's almost like a black hole type sequence, but it's really well done and quite creepy in terms of its scale. So I quite, I quite liked the ending because it's all building up to that. And I thought, is this going to be disappointing? And it, and it was pretty good. So overall, I've had my reservations about watching this film, obviously, because I love the original so much. But I don't think it does anything to spoil it, and it's its own thing. And it's well made. It was, yeah, you just, you, it was interesting that I didn't expect you to say positive things about it because I have never seen 2001 and I've never seen this. Um, mm. But I'm just looking at uh, when I was on Peter Hyams because the name rang a bell and then I scrolled down and I saw a relationship with John Claude Van Damme. And I thought, oh, of course, Peter Hyams directed Sudden Death. And it's really weird that he would direct. Tough. He would direct a sequel to one of the most celebrated films of all time and then do the relic, sudden death, time cop. 
and you think an end of days. You're like, bloody end Didn't of days. Didn't do Capricorn what? one as well though. I think you've done Capricorn one. What's Arnie's? Is it end of days? And, and I'm pretty sure that yep, Kevin Pollack, Bobby Chicago, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Jericho Kane. Oh, they're not real names. You Uduki isn't that good. Um, yeah, um, yeah. You you've mentioned Capricorn one before. Who was in that? Um. I'm just trying to remember. Elliot um, Gould, James Bowie. Hal Holbrook was in it. OJ Simpson. Simpson. Yeah, Hal Holbrook's in it. Yeah, James Brolin. Keep in with the 70s vibe then. I'll talk about... this. Is um, I'm in the middle of watching the remake now because I it's a film that I love I love the music to, um, but I've never seen, and that's uh, John Carpenter's 1976 film, Assault on Precinct 13. Um, I, I I was I don't think I've ever been more in the mood for a film when I put this on, because it was it was on Amazon Prime, it was ready to rock, or, and I thought, oh my god, this this has to happen. This I have to see this with my eyes, and um, yeah, we we had a takeaway and got some wine out and watched it, and I, I absolutely adored it. So this this is a, yeah for those who don't know, this is um, a film effectively about uh, I think it's a misnomer actually. I don't think it is actually a Precinct Thirteen. It's Precinct Nine or something. Um, and Austin Stoker is a guy who's just been assigned to this this closed police precinct, effectively supposed to only really be there until midnight when it's completely decommissioned. Uh, and there's, due to various circumstances, a, lo- a few convicts get held there for a few hours, and this siege sort of kicks off between this street gang called Steel- Street Thunder and, uh, and and the people in the precinct. And I think I think this film is perfect, but not 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 in a not in a way that I would. I think it's so it's so 70s perfect. Like when I was mm-hmm. watching the film, I, I couldn't I couldn't imagine a way it could be improved because there was so much going on with. First, of all, I, I I think the most important part of the film is the score, because I was listening to the film and I and I, and I don't think I've noticed this in anything else where. Apparently, I found it after the fact that John Carpenter had rushed the music, so um, that sort of famous down 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 I was so familiar with that from obviously like Xenon Two Mega Blast on the bass. Yeah, so I just I've got that on vinyl, so I was hip deep waiting for it, and it was really good that I was so familiar with that and John Carpenter's style, because what this film does is, because John Carpenter rushed the soundtrack, it's effectively one piece of music that is constantly being teased, because that yeah. final, those final four notes are so perfect. I've got goosebumps talking about it. The film is just this siege, and it teases you. So, like, you'll be watching it, and there'll be, like, a bit of a fire kicking off, and just shots back and forth, like a western. And then the music will go... Yeah. Don't don't, and I'm thinking I'll do it, baby. Kick into those four fucking notes, and and it does it. It was it was like foreplay, and then when it does boot into it, it's like oh thank you, and um yeah, the, I love I love the 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 sort of high concept thing. That's just it's just a siege. I love how all of the the gang were completely silent and absolutely dehumanized, like it was a zombie film. I love the lighting. I yeah. love the fact it was set in one basically small room. I love the um sort of uh like golden line filled banter that went on between them um and also one of the most attractive women in the world is in it it was never in anything else i think her name was laurie zimmer 
yeah, I think her name's Laurie Zimmer. Um, yeah. Everything about the film, I just thought this is perfect. I was. <laughs> it is now what? It's it nearly fifty years on, and I was still shocked when that girl was shot by the ice cream van. It's I was astonishing. oh, and oh, it's wow, such a good way of. It's such a good way of. I mean, it's become a cliche now that you have an early scene where to kind of uh, to establish the stakes, you have the bad guy kind of do something truly evil to say. Again, right, again, we'll cover this. We'll cover this in Suicide Squad, but yes, yes, yes. But my God, like that is just the most savage killing. Yeah, and you know, it would. You know, it's cliche, but it wouldn't. You wouldn't see it now. It wouldn't happen now. It just wouldn't, you wouldn't go that far. And it's but it's like wow, that is just totally brutal. And it's such yeah. a cleverly crafted scene because because it's all all about the ice cream man, isn't it? Yeah. And about yeah, yeah. the threat to him. You're thinking, okay, okay. So it's it's all about him. It's all about him. They're and then, driving oh, back and forth, and looking, glancing at him in the mirror. Yeah. And, and then when um yeah, it's all about the ice cream man and the, and the build up and him reaching for the gun and stuff. And then of course. And then the the father then runs the station that kicks off the main plot, and he effectively is then just removed from it entirely. Uh, and I, I like yeah. there was so many like little. It's a film that I can imagine. It feels so sparse, but when you mm. return to it, yeah, I can imagine you'll get more and more each time. Oh yeah. But but yeah, I think it's it's got to be one of John Carpenter's best films because it's, it's it's so stripped back. It's the start of a, a, just an amazing run, I would say. Like from that to like Prince of Darkness, you didn't really put a foot wrong, really. Um, and when you were talking about the music and that, the way it kind of like the fact that it was rushed and he basically only had one theme, which he just kind of played with throughout the whole film, it yeah. made me realize that actually, what that I think what the strength is, why it's so good and why it holds up so well, is because it's an absolute like masterclass in getting the most out of uh the, your limitations if you see what i mean like a limited budget uh limited uh sets uh limited music um so, so all of these things come together and yet he makes something which couldn't be better given the resources he had you see what i mean you know yeah given the amount of time he had given the budget he had uh it, it just couldn't really be it couldn't really be improved upon in that regard. So you, you, if you look at it in that context, then it is very, very, very close to perfect. Isn't it perfect. Really? You, you say that, and yet they've remade it, which I'm in the middle of watching, so we'll stay tuned. Mm. I will say there was a bit in it that really, really made Faye and myself really genuinely laugh. And there's a bit, I don't know if you remember it, how, how recently you've seen it, where the captain, when the when the the gang is starting to sort of surround them, and the captain walks out the front, and he gets shot in quick succession three or four times in the chest, and he sort of does this like, and then, and then falls over, clearly instantly dead, and then it cuts back in, and the sort of nearly receptionist goes, <laughs> the captain fell down, and and then and then, and then Austin Stoker looks over and he goes, no, he's dead, and and she sort of, oh. And it's like she's just been hit in the head with a toffee hammer too many times for that one scene. It really tickled me, like, oh, I fell down. Like, mm, did he, though? Or was he shot to death in front of you? Who knows? Um, but, yeah, definitely. I definitely, so you, um, yeah. It, 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 has it overtaken the thing as your favourite John Carpenter? It can't have done, surely. 
not on first watch. I think I could, I think if I sat down and really sort of soberly watched one and then the other, I could make a decision. But I would, I would say that this is, I I mean, I love uh, the sort of um, fun looseness again of Kurt Russell in Big Trouble in Little China. But then we'd have to have a full episode on breaking down all of his films, really, up until. I think that has to happen at some point, doesn't it? Because it's. Quite happily watch all (laughs) I happily watch all his, his whole film again up to uh, in the math madness um yeah I, i'd be because i mean i like i absolutely adore the fog as well yeah up to up to and yeah. including in the math of madness um yes with jürgen prochnov but yeah i think this is the problem isn't it you the, basically the most recent film you've seen by is is your favorite and then you watch another one of it's like oh no this is awesome as well yeah it's it's a good problem he, to have yeah, yeah, he he is an amazing director, and and like you say, it was a hell of a run, and and the, yeah, I was surprised because I've been watching this film nearly fifty years on, and it it's very rare you go back to a film that's been so built up, and when you've loved all the directors' other movies, and then think oh, actually no, it, it's your most of your filmography is just solid gold. Yeah, but but this I do love really stripped back films, and and this was this was um, def, it's definitely got to be top three for me his filmography. Wow. Yep, that's praise. Nothing will be escaped from New York. Anyway. And yeah, uh, the thing uh, beats it. I know it's weird. <laughs> um, the Omega Man, uh, which again I paid for. Um, this is uh, this is from 1971. Uh, uh, and it's got. It stars Charlton Heston, and I may I may get to the point where I talk about Soylent Green if I've got time. The problem in Soylent Green, the problem there was overpopulation. In the Omega Man, Charlton Heston's all alone. He's there's some cool scenes at the start of him driving through empty streets. Um, he wears some clothes in this film. Charlton Heston at the start, he's wearing like a, a pink work shirt and like a sandy colonel's jacket with a gun belt strapped over the jacket <laughs> bizarre. Um, he's it's, a milkman um, as well isn't he so it's even more weird <laughs> um it's it's quite weirdly prescient like the this backstory to why everything's gone wrong is because the u.s is at war with china is like some in some sort of i guess trouble trade war and maybe land war with china and there's a, a, pl- a plague outbreak which ravages the planet um so Albeit it is a result of biological warfare. So anyway, the world's ruined. Charlton Heston survived because he used a test vaccine at the time of the big outbreak. And he seems to be the last sane man in L.A. Um, There are these crazy albino robed people um, prowling in the night. um, And they say things like they're called the family and they say the family is one. And they're basically they come out at night. Um, because they can't stand the light and they are stalking Charlton Heston, besieging him really. Um, he spends his time in his penthouse string going slightly bonkers while these quasi-religious nutters burn down the city and besiege him and so he decides he's enough for this. So he sets out to find the source of this family so he can go and live in peace um, and he ends up discovering this group of survivors who are slowly dying so it's a race against time then to get hold of the vaccine. So it's really cool, eerie, and very morbid atmosphere. And it's 
it's helped by the fact that Charlton Heston's character is is got a lot of kind of good humour. Um, as with the other version of this book, I, I Am Legend, um, it's it's much like you know Will Smith is kind of you can hang around with Will Smith for a couple of hours and it, it's fine. So so he's got some real charisma. Um, it's well cast. Um, and he's particularly well cast because he's he's mean and butch, but he does have charisma. And he's, to be honest, he's enough of a one-liner tough guy in this to warrant a place in Broforce, I would say. Um, but maybe it's a little <laughs> too early. There's this, it's got some nice clever touches, like music is, is kind of disjointed and percussive. It's almost, it sounds to me like someone like half remembering what music used to sound like. So it's quite clever in that way. There's an interracial romance in it, which is quite refreshing. And she's not a damsel in distress and she's not a prostitute. So that's also refreshing. She's every part of the equal of Charlton Heston and she seduces him. So it's it's unusually forward looking. Um, it's pretty brief and it's well paced and it's got good punctuations of action the quality of the stunt doubles i won't lie is questionable but still um and i think what's crucial to the fact that the film is interesting all the way through is it doesn't go downhill after other characters are introduced like you know how we're talking about riddick a a few Mm. weeks ago i think and how basically you're just the Wolverine as well. Other, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, and the Wolverine. Yeah, you just dread in the moment when other people enter the picture. But in this, actually, it's not so bad. Like, um, I, it it works pretty well. Like the plot is pretty decent. I don't know how much it resembles Richard Matheson's novel. To be honest, it's a good film in its own right, and it's got surprisingly mobile direction and quite dynamic camera moves because I think the director was someone who came from TV so it's surprisingly cinematic looking so yeah I really enjoyed this the Omega Man um, it's yeah better than certain other films I mentioned uh, yeah, yeah I, I I think this is pretty strong and you can see what Char- why Charlton Heston was a movie star Oh really? So it, it it you can see it it is it does show him at his peak, and you can see why yes everyone loved him and why he got the career. Yeah. Peak. <laughs> I don't know. He's looking. <laughs> he's got this thing is because obviously we used to see him in Ben Hur where he's like buff and stuff. He's he's still kind of buff in this, but he's like that old Hollywood buff where it's like broad breathing shouldered. in. It's called yeah. breathing in. Not, not particularly. <laughs> toned like but just you know he'd be strong and powerful but at the same time he's it's not like he's working out every day it's just it's like like the sean connery thing of the last vestiges of a former toned body um (laughs) but yeah yeah mega man good good stuff do you have any more films to discuss i have one if that's cool and then i'll leave you to your own devices for as long as you need then um, this is. Let me just finish off the last of my wine before I talk about this. Last of the summer wine. No, Ruben. I'm not going to talk about Bill Owen. Bill Owen dying and then being replaced in the show by his own son, who looks the same age. Um, that's right. Um, I'm going to talk about Suicide Squad um, from 2016. This is a film, as you know, 
as is well documented on this podcast, I'm not really one for superhero films. And I, I watch Spider-Man and I find that when the spectacle gets too much, I lose interest. And I, when I watched the Justice League, mm-hmm. it felt too spread out. I very rarely bother with the Marvel stuff because it feels like um, just a train that I've missed effectively. I, you know, I, I just, I'm, I'm fine to miss that. So, but a Suicide Squad, I thought, well, I know it didn't get great reviews at the time, but I do like Will Smith. And I fancy actively am trying to hunt down and consume Joel Kinnaman. So I'll definitely give it a go. And and I thought, well, maybe just maybe it didn't do well because it wasn't a franchise. I mean, maybe it was just a one off like, like I like Ant-Man, Ant-Man and the Wasp. And it's called Suicide Squad. So maybe the, you know, the stakes are high and a lot of characters get killed off. People didn't like that. And it turns out that everyone in the world is right. It's not a very good film. And it's it's <laughs> it's a, it's a very much roundly not a very good film. Um so the the plot is that um, Viola Davis is Amanda Waller uh, gets a load of little tinkers together to go and do a job that she assumes they'll all die on. That's the plot. And it's where the problems start as well, because at the start when they're putting together this team, the Suicide Squad, it's not clear. It's never made clear why they are right for this job. And the film, the, the, the way the film progresses shows that it's not really clear why they're right for this job. And the end of the film, Still, still, <laughs> still doesn't entirely show why they're right for this job or indeed why they're all together. Um, it, it, they talk about they're all metahumans and, you know, you need, you need metahumans for a metahuman threat. But what, you, what you've got is that, like, Will Smith is a good shot. Harley Quinn's like a bit of a silly Billy. And then you've got a load of other people that don't need to be in the film. Um, you mentioned earlier on about... Um, uh, in, in a previous conversation where the film has no uh, anarchic spirit. And it's exactly right because the structure of this film is it's a lot of people getting together. Someone, in this case, some some bloke I've never heard of called Slipknot just gets killed to prove that they've got the, these bombs in their, in their heads are going to go off if they, if they piss off Viola Davis. And then someone sacrifices themselves heroically at the end of a film. So that structure is like every other film. And every other action, and also it means that, in terms of people doing something they don't want to do because their heads will explode, it is below Rutger Hauer's wedlock, which I think needs to be brought to people's attention. So, I, I think that yeah, I was watching it and I, I thought there's no there's no funny banter. Will Smith, Will Smith is fine, and like you know Harley Quinn is a cool character, but then I'm thinking. Is Margot Robbie good, or do I just like the Harley Quinn character from the animated series from the early 90s, that it's like a hangover mm. of that? Jared Leto in this, literally, is... I, I didn't even... He was he made such a little impact on me that I didn't even really click that he was Joker, because he's just a, like a bit of a goose knocker with green hair. And... Like Ben Affleck's Batman rocking up just makes me wish that I was just watching a Batman film purely based yeah. on Ben Affleck. So everything that was happening was just was pulling me away. I was just thinking, like, it, it, it's very clear from the start that Diablo is going to die, and would kill a croc at Captain Boomerang. Katana just don't need to be in this film because they were there to set up a sequel that never happened. Killer yeah. Croc's single moment in this film where he does anything of of note is at the end where Joel Kinnaman says throw the throw the charge into the portal, and he throws it, but it's all in slow motion. And then of course Deadshot shoots it, but 
the portal is probably like a skittle alley length away from them. So I mm-hmm. reckon I could have sh- I could have hit that, and I reckon I could have thrown it as well. And everything about the film was just, and all, and also the actual film itself. It just, it really does feel like they get all of them together. They show like all the little skills and talents. None of them particularly like metahuman apart from Diablo, and then they just walk down a street, a single grey street. And it just feels yeah. like it goes on forever. There's also a sequence where Diablo tells a story about how his family died, and it, it, it because the film is trying to get so much, it feels so weirdly busy, and yet it gives us no information or anything to cling on to. When when Diablo's telling the story about how his family died, it cuts back, and all of these like supposedly hardened psychotic criminals are like crying, and I thought that was just a bad joke, but no, they, they, they're supposed to be crying. You're supposed to like. <laughs> feel that empathy and i thought no the film's too bad for that i'm afraid um yeah it hasn't earned that no no it was awful i like jay courtney i like will smith i like joel kinnaman but there's nothing there's nothing in this film i can't imagine anyone liking it i don't think anyone did like it did they i don't know i assume not i don't imagine that i i I suppose the only people who may have liked it are people who are entirely unfamiliar with any of the characters or didn't have any expectations coming into it i suppose uh but, but even then the, the end of the film there's sequences yeah. where they, they they fight against these really poorly defined enemies in fact the brother and sister like magic gods effectively mm. and the, the it, bearing in mind that Fred, this this sums up the whole film right so dead shot will smith's character can, never misses a shot and he has got a bum load of guns and yet when this like hulking nine foot tall Tellingly, you never see him against any other character that isn't CG because I think there were problems. I genuinely believe there are problems with the CG in this film, and you never mm. see any like non any human character make contact with a CG character. And so he walks down, and you see him walk to the camera and throw a punch, and you think you're you're just like a bloke in his late forties that we've never seen any physical capabilities of other than you're like a hitman who never misses a shot. And then we don't see what happens to him. We just see him like do a little roly poly where he's been hit back. And I thought, if I walked up to an ancient mythical, like sort of pseudo Aztec ten foot god and threw a punch, and his reaction was something that made me just do a roly poly, <laughs> that's that's crap. That is, like, so like, uh, to be honest, I'd, I'd take that. You know, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'd like it. I'd be like, oh, I'm not, do- I'm not doing that again. If this yeah, ancient, might, may- <laughs> if this ancient evil is going to do anything to me, making me do a roly poly would be. Pretty high on the list. For me. Can you imagine if I was in a bar, like an old man in a bar drinking, like shakily drinking a tequila, and someone comes up and says, T- Tell him, Brett, tell him the story about when that ancient mythical deity hit you so hard you did a bloody roly poly. <laughs> <laughs> I got a generous, uh, bloody lucky I was, to be honest. Um, <laughs> I, could, I, I could have got dissolved. But but yeah, and, and that happens a lot in the final sequence um, where. It, it, there's not really a final sequence apart from like lights shining because they, they of course they all turn up there and because there's clearly been a problem with the cg no one like makes any contact with anyone so it's just them talking about what they should do and then and then it kind of gets resolved <laughs> yeah I, so it's really it, bad it reeks of being open for a sequel doesn't it which means they can't yes. kill off too many characters kind of too many interesting narrative uh, turns um we were talking about this earlier because i mentioned that um 
I I had a feeling that the the final cut of the film uh, was given to the to the people who edited the trailer because the trailer was so successful and so well done and it is a good trailer. Um, they handed the final cut to them, and I, I may explain some of the weirdness with regard to the editing, but also what I didn't realise when I was checking the veracity of that story. So apparently the first 40 minutes of the film were cut um, with uh, and only, with only small sections of it being used um, uh, for flashbacks in the film, apparently. So, so uh, amongst a whole bunch of other cuts and uh, re- reshoots and all sorts, but that's just, it just sounds like a total mess. Like, it sounds like a recipe for an editorial mess, anyway. It, uh, it's like one that. of the, we, I talked about something before, what was it, Not it wasn't um, Nightbreed, it was a film where I said, there's probably a three hour cut of this out there that I'd like to watch, that I can yeah. imagine would fix it, but with this, I mean, th- this, there's so many characters in it and so little explanation for anyone's like mo- motivations or whatever mm. that you just think, I don't, I can't imagine how there would be a good cut of it because it is from what I can see, it's them getting a load of like slightly tedious people together and then making them walk down a street. So <laughs> I'm trying to see how that can be improved by another two hours. Yeah. Well, yeah, at least you've, finally expose yourself to it next is birds of prey i guess for you yes i'm sorry to say isn't much better oh i get that margot robbie is loves the character of harley quinn but i think harley quinn needs well from my having read a few of the the comic books it's, it's such a it's got such an anarchic quality to it the harley quinn stuff the solo harley quinn stuff anyway where it's a lot of fourth wall breaking. I mean, there's a there's a sequence in one of the comic books where she says she's getting bored of this art style and like literally it switches, it, she starts switching art styles. So it'll suddenly go into like anime art style and then it'll be like a really old fashioned kind of Hanna-Barbera style and things like that, just like properly nutty stuff, which is all fourth wall breaking. And it's like, I suppose you can't, in a film like this where he's, is trying to satisfy an audience used to say Marvel movies and stuff. I guess it's, she's never going to be able to do that. It's never going to be possible. So I don't think we're ever going to see that level of total anarchy with regard to Harley Quinn in particular. You've talked about it before with Marvel, because obviously you've seen more Marvel films than I have. And we were talking about that, how they're, they're, they're sort of homogenized to, to a fault where they just they just need to be as appealing as possible with no real threat and be and to to not rule up future franchises, but it would have been really interesting to see a film where like people could just get. But then again, in this film, like I, I'm pretty sure that you only see Captain Boomerang throw Boomerang once. You know, it's yeah. it's like it's like so many things are cut out that. And they're such sub It's like they got in all these sub characters. They're like, oh, we can kill off Captain Boomerang and no one will care. We we you know we can kill off Diablo. We can kill off. Um, uh, various characters with Cloth Killer Croc is fine, but then not even that doesn't even happen. So mm. it's like it just feels really, really flat. I will watch the new one because I think that I, the trailer top popped up my phone a few days ago and it said something like, um, I know they're, they're dying to they're dying to 
win or whatever it is. So I'm assuming that like a lot of people, if they just assume this is going to be a standalone film, The Suicide Squad 2021, and there's genuine threat, that would be something. A bit start, wouldn't it? Okay. Um, moving on to where, where is Suicide Squad? Where, what? That's, that is on Netflix. Okay. Uh, moving on to the Andromeda strain. You really have been watching the 70s films. Oh, yeah, baby. 1971. uh, An interstellar virus arrives on a meteorite. Uh, The virus wipes out a small town. So a group of scientists, they venture into an underground facility to investigate the virus and eliminate the threat before it breaks out into the wider world. This is a a thoughtful sci-fi. Um from the same period as like 2001 and THX 1138 it's written by Michael Crichton um oh. it is it's got some hammy acting in it i'd say but it's got very believable science it's depicting slow meticulous science work really i mean just the decontamination sequence when they're going into the facility takes 20 minutes of screen time um so I mean, obviously, with 2001, Kubrick wanted to make a realistic sci-fi film. And I think this has the same aim, although it's almost always grounded and it's almost anti-ambiguity. Everything is scientifically explained. Um, And in fact, the Infectious Diseases Society of America, uh, up until recently, they regarded this as the most realistic depiction of a viral outbreak and investigation never filmed. So it's quite impressive, really. It's directed very precisely by Robert Wise, who I still feel is an underrated director. He he also made a political sci-fi in The Day the Earth Stood Still, and he made Star Trek The Motion Picture, which was more of an epic sci-fi. Um, this is really nicely shot. Um, uh, it was very claustrophobic interiors, and it has some intriguing use of split screen and extremely early CG which is pretty cool just for the ui on the screens and there's like a 3d render wireframe render of the facility but that was pretty cool douglas trumbull again responsible for the fx good um but there's actually the the tech is really forward looking for the time i mean the the computers in the facility they're all networked and there's touch screens and you have these ultra hd cameras and stuff so it's pretty amazing the only bit the feels really dated is again it it comes down to like relations between the US and Russia and it being a bit of a cautionary tale about atomic bombs and that so that does put it in its time um but yeah it's not really so much about that anyway it's more about these scientists just trying to get the job done and and the scientists themselves they they conduct themselves with humor and humanity and they act like adults and they don't have petty grievances and contrived conflicts. The only conflicts they have is about how to resolve this problem. So it's, it feels like a grown-up movie. Um, it's a film about protocol and logical thought processes. Um, well, not bad c- policing, which takes up about 80% of this podcast. <laughs> and that makes, to me, it makes it quite scary in a way. It's quite a believable threat, this idea of this alien microorganism that just dispassionately obliterates the human race so there is a lot at stake and there's a surprisingly exciting final sequence in the central core which i think was 
almost certainly an influence on the end of Star Trek Two: Wrath of Khan. It's definitely not for everyone, though. I wouldn't say this film. It's very, it's sober, it's slow, it's quiet, um, and it's very heavy on technical language. But it is one of a kind, and I just like its technical rigor and its zen-like mood. Really, it's the it's probably the least dated of the 70s sci-fi I watched. And it's one of the this sounds devices. right up my street. Is this available on like Prime or Amazon? Or... No, Sorry. it's paid only. So you might have to... I might actually. Is it, you say this is written by Michael Crichton. Is it directed by him as well? As was no, it's Robert Wise. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. 1984 so, was Runaways. Yeah. Michael Crichton, what did he... Just trying to think of what he would have done in the 70s. He did Westworld, didn't he, in the 70s? Classic. Three. Yeah, I, I just know that he did. Um, he directed Runaway, which I was. I'm still surprised that I like so much. Um, yeah, like I said, I've I've got no more. So feel free to just rattle on if you want. Fancy it. All right. Yeah. Well, I can I can blast through Outland then, um, which was made in 1981, which is an almost great sci-fi western. It's basically high noon in a Martian mining colony, uh, colony really. Um, Sean Connery is the new sheriff in this mining colony on Mars. Uh, sorry, not sheriff, marshal, of course. So he he comes there and he finds that the, the random workers are just going loopy and killing themselves. Turns out that the general manager is trading in amphetamines and... Uh, Sean Connery wants to put a stop to it, although he has very few friends and the clock is ticking before a ship arrives with gunmen to take him out. Um, first thing you notice is the production design in this film, it borrows heavily from Alien. It's like really kind of dirty retro future tech. Um, and it is, at times it's like watching a kind of de- detective thriller play out in the Alien universe, which it's very atmospheric. There's some good action sequences in it. There's a there's an excellent foot chase in the middle of the film and pretty tense final sequence. The one friend that who Sean Connery does have in this film is this curmudgeonly doctor played by Francis Sternhagen, and their relationship's quite fun. The relationship between Connery and his family is a bit less interesting, I would say. <laughs> it's it's meant to up the stakes, but you just get the sense that they're better off apart. Like his wife just seems resentful of his job and Connery clearly just wants to devote his life to the job. So um, I don't know. It seems a bit of an afterthought, really. But I do. I love the oppressive mood um, and the sense that Sean Connery is just totally out of his depth and totally alone. So the only way so it means the only way he can kind of deal with stuff, he like it's not even as if it's just he doesn't have friends just in general. Everyone in his department is just totally corrupt and hates him and wants him gone. He's got no one. So basically his only way of dealing with stuff is just through complete aggressive confrontation. He has to just confront people all the time, um, which makes it quite exciting, really, because, you know, as soon as he walks in a room, he's going to have a go at someone or try and shoot them. Um, I mean, there there are plot holes all over the shop, Um, not least, frankly, why it's so hard to kill Sean Connery who, as I said, has zero allies. And there's a big chunk of Blade Runner syndrome going on here. Like, Sean Connery massively lucks out simply because various henchmen (laughs) are missing uh, with their guns. But, um, yeah, 
so I'd say in terms of the d- design and atmosphere, it definitely matches like something like Alien. Script-wise, you know, not so much, but I think it's really enjoyable and visually rich thriller, and it holds up pretty well, um, just thanks to the production design more than anything. And uh, and I really think that transposing that that Western plot into space really really works. So I think this one stands up. What was that called? Sorry. That's called Outland. And is that anywhere I can see it with my eyes? Nowhere, nowhere that you wouldn't you'd get it for free. Oh, I, I mean, they're, they're all available to be paid for, for renting. I, I will have a look with yeah, my eyes. It's, it's worth a look. I think Outland is... I, I'm surprised it's not talked about more, because it, it seems like... It's like almost a classic, not quite good enough to be like a classic, but... It's better than the next film that I'm going to mention, which is regarded as a classic, which is called Logan's Run. Um, and this was made probably the latest out of all these films, uh, all of the 70s ones I mentioned. This was made in 76. So this is set very, very far in the future. In um, And the whole of the human race, they live in these big domed cities, basically. Um, and no one leaves and no one lives past 30. So when their time comes, um, when they're about to hit 30, I guess, they enter something called the carousel, which is this sort of ritual um, where they kind of float up into the air and are either obliterated or supposedly get renewed, i.e. resurrected. Then there are certain people who are called runners, who might try and avoid the carousel and escape, but there are police around to present, prevent them from leaving and they just get shot dead. Um, everything in this future is automated, so no one works. They just enjoy having sex with each other, really. Um, but there's no need for like marriage or anything because lives are so short. So anyway, Logan is played by Michael York. He is one of the cops stopping people from running away. Um, and through various circumstances he ends up himself escaping the dome um in search of a mythical place called the sanctuary where people apparently live until old age he takes with him i'd say i was gonna say he employs the help of jennifer and uh, jenny agatha but she doesn't really help she just comes along for the ride michael york and jenny agatha they do have good chemistry i will say that so that's cool um but anyway yeah so they go to find the sanctuary it's not really a spoiler to say that they do find it outside the dome but the question is will logan have the opportunity to convince the people back in the dome that there's a world out there so the thing about this film is the production design is ridiculously gaudy and camp it's all like mirrored walls and curvaceous furniture and primary coloured outfits is preposterous. There's a bizarre sex club scene, which is like something out of a Gaspar Noé film. It's just odd. Um, uh, I guess it's going for some of that like trippy 70s vibe, but it's a bit late for that really in 76. I don't really know what they're going for there. Anyway. Anything trippy and drug fueled is always problematic now, it's as true. we've learned from Point Blank with Lee Marvin. <laughs> yeah. Um, or indeed The Trip with Bruce Dern. Um, <laughs> so 
this this is quite charming but completely unconvincing model work to depict the dome city it's literally like as if the camera's floating across the city but it's so obviously a model like with like just painted on water and stuff and a little monorail a tiny little monorail and tracks which is clearly just a toy moving along it it's preposterous and all of that kind of silliness and cheapness and campness it distracts you from a very sinister central idea um at the heart of the film which is it over 20 years well the whole but it's more it's more just the general idea of um this population of uh, very pure bred um very white people it seems that all non-white people have been completely bred from the population so it's, it's very creepy and anyway there's a lot of complex rules governing this society but i would say the film does a pretty impressive job of not just info dumping everything on news it it crafts it quite well for the first 30 minutes anyway i'd say and it's that sheer kind of volume of ideas that keeps the film interesting for the most part because because otherwise it's pretty trashy and the sets look like theater stages um and any seriously i mean kitsch doesn't even begin to describe it really tacky sets really stagey tone and really like ooh mrs kinkiness like the outfits mm. that Jenny Agatha wears, wow, it's just ridiculous. Um, but it doesn't have that ironic kind of edge of, say, Flash Gordon, for example. It, it was this was made in 1976, but it looks like a 50s film. And I think the guy who directed it also made the Dam Busters, of course, back in the 50s. So it kind of makes sense, I suppose. But the, it never really settles on a tone because it's got this really goofy script and this high camp production values and then it's mixed with this dead serious almost preachy warnings about man's influence on the planet um plus the two main characters michael york and jenny agatha they are just by their nature utterly humorless as well so the only relief really comes along when finally finally peter eustonoff turns up thank god and he at least brings some wit and warmth to it so that's one saving grace. But the script is pretty bad. Like once they escape the dome, it's just them. It's basically a process of them, the pair kind of coming across new stuff, being surprised and then asking a bunch of expository questions. It's really clunky. And I'd say in the end, there's a moment where the film almost nods towards a more interesting and more prescient theme that this utopia, this supposed utopia is only possible through like the massive suppression of free or contradictory speech but that part lasts like five minutes so the one interesting part is just glossed over so overall i think it's just i don't really understand why it's had the legs it has to be honest this film is there a scene in this film where uh, in a moment of respite Jenny Agatha turns to Michael York and says, you're talking from the back of your throat. <laughs> I think he's too busy looking at her clearly visible nipples through her um, latest skimpy outfit. And saying, amount- wow, fantastic. <laughs> but it's ridiculous. The amount of opportunities they have to get her wet or tear her clothing in a kind of like... Um, 
I don't know, like, like slutty slave kind of way. It's like, please. And she does nothing throughout the whole film. Absolutely. Just, she does nothing. It's so demeaning for her. Uh, Tragic, really. Uh, it just sounds like a film. Um, but yeah, so it's not a very good film. It, 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 yeah, it pissed me off a lot. I, it's it's oddly charmless. Um, which, like, at least with the other films, uh, you know, I've talked about, even the cheaper, you know, like I was saying about Silent Running, how, like, the model work isn't that convincing and stuff. But there's a certain charm to the film because it's sort of well-meaning. Uh, and it has, so it has that part of it is timeless. But this just seems like such a product of its time. Uh, and so dated on so many levels that yeah not good um so is that is that your last movie that is there's probably a couple more i could uh discuss but i think i'll roll them over to next time so we're not completely wallowing Um, in my voice i I was thinking before we 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 round up and do the the usual uh, end of episode things i was just thought we could maybe next next time we do this next week um Maybe spend a few minutes talking about Richard Donner's career because obviously he passed away this month. Mm. So it'd be nice yes. to just to, you know, go through a few of his films, uh, mainly Lethal Weapon for two hours, and then just <laughs> knock it on that. I'm, um, I'm happy to. So I, think I was he did all the Lethal Weapon films, didn't he? Uh, yeah. Well, I'm assuming so because they were all good. Yes, they were all good. <laughs> um, the only one I, I haven't seen Maverick, so I'll have to catch up on that clearly. Yeah, I, do you know what? I, that's again. That was a film that was uh, on pretty heavy rotation in the video store because it's a PG, so I didn't have to turn it off if kids came in. And and I I, I have fond memories of it mainly because I didn't have to jump up and turn it off every time any kids walked in, unlike a woman scorned. <laughs> um, so, um, oh, Body Chemistry Four with Andrew Stevens. Um, it was like literally just slamming. Uh, I don't know. Um, Shannon tweeted over a pool table and then says, "Do you know I'm thinking about going into production as opposed to starring a film?" And then you just hear, "Cat, can you can you not talk about that?" Um, so yeah, uh, a killer stalks the night. You'll probably see him coming. And I've before we do the actually no, we'll, we'll do the um, the before I do the next Arkansas, which I've chosen for you. Um, my film of the week out of four. I, in, admittedly, you've got three thousand miles to Graceland, which I do think people should watch. Um, Fear Street 1994, which just is not for me. Suicide Squad, which is just a disappointment across the board. So it's got to be Assault on Precinct 13, uh, my film of the week. Oh, yeah, of course. Easily. Um, so, well, I would say Luca because it's very, very good. I love it. And, and it, it must be good because I've watched it 400,000 times now because um, because my son loves it because of the colours and my wife loves it because she just loves it. So, yes, so it's on It's a film for all the family. But okay, Absolutely. Then, Generations. But if I was going to... Yeah, I was going to say, if I could ask you to choose one from the 70s uh, <laughs> sci-fi stuff. Yes. Um, so of them, I I think the most watchable one uh, would be. Ooh, it's a toss up between the Omega Man and Outland, really, in terms of like the Omega Man was the most surprisingly enjoyable for me. 
But I think whenever, at, whenever you say the Omega Man, it just reminds me of like the Marlboro Man, like it's just a guy with a really expensive watch in an advert. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> um, but perhaps, perhaps Outland, but just because it's it's the more cinematic movie, perhaps. I, and and it's got such a such a rich atmosphere. It's not a perfect movie by any sense, by any stretch of the imagination. But I feel that it's overlooked. So I think Outland would be my recommendation. Not technically from the 70s, but my God, it looks like it's from the 70s. Okay, so before we part ways and getting our ships and sail to distant separate shores. I'm just going upstairs to bed. Your Arkansas, your Arkansas, and uh, the listener's Arkansas for this week, is to get from Courtney Cox to Bruce Dern. Mm Mm-hmm. In fewer than one step. So they have to be in a film together, basically. <laughs> well, I thought I'd do something that seems a bit more simple as opposed to a comedian who happened to be in a documentary. It seems it seems doable, yeah. I, 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 I might try... I, I mean, I, I do knock these up as we, as we go through the show, but it, I do like the thought of doing them, but then I like being surprised even more when I get texts of uh, listeners... So, um, mm. yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. So, yeah, if you want to email us, it's uh, the men who talk at outlook.com. And you've got to get from Courtney Cox to Bruce Dern. And the films of the week are Assault on Precinct 13 and Luca. Not the Suzanne Vega song from the early 90s, covered by the Lemonheads. <laughs> and remember, Rupert, a killer stalks the night. You'll probably see him coming.